You remember at the uh, end of the last lesson during the discussion time, the question was asked, you know, it, it, uh, it seems as if some of the, very, the, the key texts for proving the deity of Christ were lacking in chapter 3, and I couldn't process quick enough why that was. Um, I said, we'll probably get to them in the next chapter, which we certainly do here. Uh, but the reason was, in the previous uh, chapter, the focus was on analyzing Christ's uh, perception of himself. So, how did Christ view himself? And so, we were going to some texts of Scripture that are a little more, or a little more often neglected, uh, but they helped to... Um, they helped us to understand how Christ perceived himself. And in this passage, we're going to be looking at what the New Testament says about Christ. So what did others say about him? What did especially the apostles who wrote Holy Scripture say about Christ? And of course, there's perfect agreement between the two things, but we're looking at the matter from different vantage points here. So here we come to a very famous text of Scripture that prove uh, that the Bible teaches that Christ is the God-man, that Christ is God with us. Let me read some portions from the introduction to this text. In this chapter, we continue to summarize the biblical data regarding who Jesus is as God the Son incarnate by turning to the apostolic witness to Christ. The apostles' understanding of Jesus' Jesus's identity is no different from Jesus' self-identity in fact, they learned it from him. I think I should say this. We, we must remember that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, though they include lots of direct citations from Christ, Christ said this and Christ said that. Some of our Bibles have red letters in them, right? And the red letters are supposed to indicate these were the words that Jesus spoke. And that, that's all well and good. But we should remember that the Gospels were actually written by either the apostles of Christ or those closely associated with the apostles of Christ in the case of, especially in the case of Luke. Um, so this, these are the, the apostles telling us about Jesus, sometimes using Jesus' own words, but oftentimes presenting to him to us in their own unique way. That's a bit of a side note, but it's important to see. We're going to be looking at the apostles uh, witness to Christ here in this chapter. We cannot do an exhaustive survey of the biblical data, Wellam says. It is also important to see that the apostles present Jesus within the Bible storyline. Jesus is first presented, the first promised, is first the promised Messiah, David's greater son who inaugurates God's saving rule and reign. Okay, so two things. Uh, Wellam admits that he's not going to to analyze every important text, but he chooses only a few important texts. And then he also wants us to see by way of introduction that when they do speak of Christ and when they tell us about who He is, they present Him within the context and framework of the Bible's narrative. So they're not just direct statements of fact concerning the nature of Jesus. Sometimes we do have those. But, but oftentimes Christ is presented to us within the story this Jesus is the promised king. This Jesus is the prophet. This Jesus is the promised priest of God. He is the Messiah that has been promised from long ago. He's the fulfillment to all the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Right? You hear me preach this way all the time, so it's not new to you. But it is important for us to see that this is how Jesus is presented to us. Not in isolation from the 
meta narrative of scripture but as a part as the central part of the meta narrative of scripture which tells us the story of our redemption um, it's important to recognize that uh, wellam selects how many key texts 5 john 1 1 through 18 matthew 1 18 through 25 and luke 1 26 through 38 he deals with them as one Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, and Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and 2, 5 through 18. So he has five sections to his chapter. And you'll notice here that really I'm only going to spend time on two of these, John 1, 1 through 18, and Philippians 2, 6 through 11. You're just going to have to read the book to get the great teaching on these other passages of Scripture. We won't have the time to go through each of them uh, in, in exhaustive uh, detail here. 1 John 1.18. This is a familiar text. Very familiar. I thought it would be good for me to read it to you. And I think I do run the risk here of running out of time uh, today. Let me read the text to you so it's just fresh on your minds. And then I'll go through... Wellam's explanation of the text. It's very good. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That that sounds familiar to you all, I hope. He, uh, that is to say the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him, that is to say in the Word, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I think I can skip down for the sake of time to verse 14. Uh, In between here and verse 14, there's a description of uh, the ministry of uh, John the Baptist and his testimony to the light. There's some other important things said too, but verse 14 says, And the Word, so we return to focus on the Word, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth Came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That is an incredible statement. That is an incredible statement. Let me read verse 18 again. No one has ever seen God. That means no one has ever seen God as He is. Even Moses, when he saw God, was shown a manifestation of the glory of God. He was shown the backside of God, as it were, and not God's face uh, when God when, when Moses spoke with God face to face were to see that he saw a manifestation uh, of, of the glory of God but not God as he is God is a most pure spirit isn't he uh, so we have to think clearly about this no one has ever seen God but then John says the only God who is at the father's side he has made him known this is speaking of the word of God the Son of God incarnate Jesus Christ. It's a marvelous text. I want to quickly go through Wellam's remarks on this. 
and he says more than what I'm able to present to you today uh, for the sake of time. How does the prologue identify our Lord Jesus Christ as the divine Son whom became, who became human? This, the, the prologue that he's talking about here is the prologue or the introduction to the Gospel of John. We just read it. How does the prologue identify our Lord Jesus Christ as the divine Son who became human? Remember, God is one, and yet He eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We could also say that the, the one true God eternally exists in three persons, the Father, Word, and Spirit. We can use either of those names to refer to the second person of the Trinity. So, how does the prologue identify our Lord Jesus Christ as the divine Son, the second person of the, the eternal God, the Trinity, who became human? It does so by its use of the word, uh, use of uh, the word word. In the Greek, it is logos, and God. In the Greek, it is theos. John is the only biblical author to identify Christ by the title word. To establish its meaning, we need to locate the term within the Old Testament instead of looking outside Scripture, despite its widespread use in Greek thought. In the Old Testament, Word is closely associated with God who creates, reveals, and redeems all by His Word. And here he cites a number of important texts. For the sake of time, I'll only remind you of what Genesis 1.1 says. Uh, God, in the beginning, created all things seen and unseen. And how did He do it? He did it by speaking. And He said, and He said, and He said. And so, even in Genesis 1, uh, though it is not stated as clearly as it is stated here in John 1, notice the connection, by the way, between Genesis 1 and John 1. They're dealing with very similar things, and we must notice that. Though Genesis 1.1 doesn't say it as explicitly or clearly as John 1.1 does, that God created all things through the Word, right? Uh, it hints at it, doesn't it? That you, you have God speaking the world into existence, and also you have Him doing so by the agency of the Holy Spirit who is hovering over the waters. So, there are hints at the Trinity there. Uh, even in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks His Word and creates through the Word, the Father creates through the agency of the Word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Wellam is right. We're not to look for the meaning or the significance of this word, word, in Greek thought, though there are some interesting things to be noticed there about how that word is used within pagan literature. We must look to the Bible. When John uses the word, word, to refer to the second person of the Trinity, what does he mean? Let's look to the way that the Scriptures uh, use this, this term. By the use of this title, John identifies Jesus the Son with God. But further, by his use of God, John also teaches that the Word is God, yet is simultaneously distinct from the Father. I, I hope you can follow along with what Wellam is saying here. It will become clearer as we go. But when you read John 1, 1 and following carefully, you get this, you come to this conclusion, you must. There is a sense in which the Word is God, 
So there is a sense in which the Word is identified with God, the same as God, but there also is a sense in which the Word is distinct from God, the Father. I mean, it, it agrees, of course, perfectly with our doctrine of the Trinity. There is a sense in, in which there is one God who is undivided, who is simple. We learned this in our previous study on the Trinity. But there is, an all, there is also a sense in, in which there is a threeness within God. Not three distinct separate entities, you know, the Father being more God than the Son and the Son being more God than the Spirit. No, no, no. All equally God, all having the fullness of the divine nature. Uh, one God, but in three subsistences or in three persons. Uh, and, of course, we must learn to talk about that using the language of eternal generation. Okay, that's our previous study. But you, you can see this, this teaching clearly in John chapter 1, verse 1 and following. In John 1.1, 1, 1, I'm reading now point 2 in our outline under A. In John 1.1, 1, 1, John uses a triadic structure to make these points. Each of these three clauses has the same subject, that is to say, it's speaking about the word, and an identical verb, the verb is was, and each clause pro- progresses to the next. So here are the three clauses of John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. So picture it now. We're talking about the word. We're talking about the Son of God who became flesh, the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word. So this teaches us that the Word is eternal. And Jesus, we will learn, as the Son, is eternal. So the Word was not something that was made. You understand this, right? The Word was not something that was made in the beginning. In the beginning, God created all things seen and unseen. So you have Creator, and you have creation. Those two things in the beginning, right? In the beginning when God made the heavens and the earth, you have two things. The Creator, and you have the creation. What category must we put the Word in? Creator. We must put Him in the Creator category. The Word is to be identified not with anything in creation... God the Father did not create the Son in the beginning. No, in the beginning was the Word. And the passage will clarify very quickly that everything that was brought into into existence was in fact brought into existence through Him. So clearly, we are to identify the Word with not creation, but with Creator. He is the Creator God. Okay, that is what the first clause clearly teaches. In the beginning was the Word. Clause 2, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God. So this little phrase here does teach us that there is a sense in which the Word is distinct from God, and I think we must say the Father. When we bring our Trinitarian theology into this text, which it is right for us to do, because we don't just read texts in isolation from other texts, you know. We read this text knowing what the rest of the Bible says about the nature of God. I think it is right for us to read God as meaning Father. The Word is, in some sense, distinct from the Father, 
And then here's the third clause. And the Word was God. In other words, the Word, the second person of the triune God, shares the full deity of God. The Word is not something less than God, but is fully divine. Marvelous, right? In one little verse, in three little tiny clauses, you have this wonderful doctrine presented to us very succinctly. We're to read it being mindful of Genesis 1. All that has been said already, so I won't repeat it. It's just a wonderful thing. Here's what Wellam goes on to say, point three. Before we turn to John's teaching on the Incarnation, however, it is significant that predicating God, uh, Theos, to Christ is not limited to John. What he is saying here is that this is not the only place in Holy Scripture where Christ is equated with God. It's, this isn't the only text. okay? And he lists a number of passages here. Uh, this construction where, where Christ and God are uh, equated with one another uh, appears at least seven times in the New Testament. John 1.1, 1, 1, verse 18 also. John 20.28, 20, Romans 9.5, Titus 2.13, 2 Peter 1, 1, Hebrews 1, 1.8. Why is this important? Wellam asks, Scripture applies many titles to Christ, but most of them refer to Christ's deity and humanity together. I added the word together. For example, Christ is called the Son. He is called the Son of Man. He is called Messiah. But Theos, the Greek word for God, applies to Jesus as an explicit assertion that He is God. No doubt the title Lord, Kurios, is similar, but Theos is more ex- explicit. So the, the title Lord, we have learned even in the previous chapter that who is our Lord? God is Lord. So when Christ is called Lord, we're really saying He's God. So He says that again here, but He is saying it's more explicit of course to just refer to Him as God. That is Theos in the Greek. Christ is, is God. Uh, it's stated, he says, at least seven times in the New Testament, but John 1, 1 through 18 is perhaps the most famous passage where this doctrine is clearly taught. Now, point four, quoting Wellam again, we return to the staggering teaching of John 1, 14, where we discover that the divine word son became flesh and thus is fully human. So what did John 1, 1 teach us about the Word? We just covered it. The Word is God. The Word is God, is what John 1, 1 teaches us along with some other things. We just discussed it. But John 1, 14 tells us very clearly that this Word, or This Son, the second person of the eternal God, became flesh and thus is fully human. So when we talk about Jesus, we must say that He is fully God. He has the fullness of divine nature. And He is also fully human. He has the fullness of human nature united together in one person. 
But who exactly became flesh? That is what Wellam asks. A great, a great question. Who exactly became flesh? Who is the subject of the incarnation? John is emphatic. It is the Word who became human, not the divine nature, nor even the Father or the Spirit. So the acting subject, which the church later calls person, of the incarnation is the Word. Who became flesh and dwelt among us? I, I, I suppose we could speak um, generically about this, and, and we could say that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's true. But if I were to say, no, be more specific, be more precise, what would we have to say? Who became flesh and dwelt among us? The Son did. The Word did. Either of those terms is, of course, acceptable. It is He who united Himself to a human nature, became flesh. And now He subsists in two natures. As God the Son, He remains what He has always been in relation to the Father and the Spirit, fully and equally sharing the divine nature, John 1.1, but now, the Word Son has assumed, uh, has taken to Himself a human nature to reveal the divine glory and achieve our redemption. In that human nature, the Son is now able to live and experience a fully human life, yet without any change to the Son's deity. Did you hear that? yet without any change to the Son's deity, since this would preclude Him from displaying the fullness of the Father's glory, John 1, 14 and 18, and accomplishing His mission to save. That paragraph right there is outstanding. It would be wise of you to just read it over and over and over again. It's mysterious, no doubt. This, this paragraph is not going to remove the mystery. Nothing that we learn in this this whole study is going to remove the mystery of the Incarnation. But we must learn to speak with precision about it. Uh, the eternal Word of God assumed a human nature. Was there any change? When this happened, did anything change in the divine nature? No, God cannot change. So whatever we say about the Incarnation, however we think about the Son taking to Himself assuming a human nature. We cannot think that at that moment um, there was change in God. We're going to talk a lot about that in the second half of this study. He assumed a human nature. He remained what He always was while becoming, in a sense, something that He was not. But we have to be careful with that word, becoming. Yeah, Chad, did you have a question? Yeah. The language of addition and even the biblical language of becoming need to be clarified. Like they need to be carefully. Like when, when the word when we say, when the Bible says the word became flesh, how do we understand the word became? Right? That that's the question. It's biblical language. It's not like we should reject that language, but we have to understand it properly in 
in the immediate context and in the, and in the context of the whole of Scripture. So becoming does not mean morphed into, right, in the way that a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. The divine nature did not morph into something different that it was not before, but rather assumed. And I think the language of addition is okay as long as we properly define it as well. By added, we, don't, we do not mean that the divine nature was, was, was changed in that moment. Uh, so that's really the crux of the issue, and I think that's really what the church has fought hard to clarify in, in establishing Christological orthodoxy, which we'll consider in the second portion of the book. Uh, if you have the time, go listen to the audio recordings from the Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference. Um, some of these lectures are pretty meaty. There's a lot on that question right there, Chad, that you just asked. There's a lot on that. So the, the audio from the Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference that we had back in November would be very helpful. Also, I recorded a podcast recently with Dr. Richard Barcelos where I was just um, uh, giving a, uh, you know, doing a debrief on the Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference. So it's about 45 minutes long. It's on theology in particular. And we, we get into this too. And I even say in that, shouldn't we be careful with the language of becoming? And I think Rich at that point, uh, in, a, in his lovely, snarky way, uh, sarcastically replied to me, well, it's what the Bible says, Joe. You know, I understand that, but how do we need to be careful? It's that, that very question, Chad. Very good. Okay, paragraph four here, point four, is a wonderful statement. And then let's go on to paragraph five, uh, because we're going to run out of time. This point is reinforced by the concluding sentence of the prologue of John, which brings us back to its, its opening verse. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. In the Old Testament, some saw visions of God, yet they never truly saw God other than in a theophany. Uh, in, in a manifestation of, of His glory. But in the incarnate Son, the full disclosure of God is now made visible. John, along with the entirety of Scripture, teaches the exclusive, unique identity of Christ. Who, who is Jesus? He is God the Son, one with the Father and the Spirit, who now in His incarnation has become human to reveal God and to redeem His people. We're going to eventually talk about the theology of the Incarnation and why this was necessary. In fact, I think I'm going to preach a sermon on Christmas Day entitled, Why the Incarnation? Um, we'll, we'll get there, but now we're just considering the texts. Um, yes, this is wonderful teaching, a wonderful treatment of John 1, 1 through 18. There was something else that came to mind and then it's gone out of my mind. Um, and it happened real fast. That was weird. Maybe I'm supposed to just move on. Okay, Matthew 1, 18-25 and Luke 26 26-38. I just wanted to briefly touch on this um, passage, these passages. Uh, Wellam says a lot more than this. But here he's asking the question, how did the incarnation take place? You know that these passages both deal with the, um, the, the birth of Jesus and before that the miraculous conception um, of Jesus in the womb of, of Mary, the Virgin uh, so this is virgin birth uh, subject matter here. How did the incarnation take place? It's a wonderful question. Matthew and Luke alone record the means by which the incarnation took place, namely God's triune sovereign act in and through the Virgin Mary. These texts are important for at least two reasons. 
First, they reveal how the Word became flesh. God did it in this way. Second, they remind us that God the Son really became human. He was truly born of Mary. But He was born of Mary in an utterly unique way. Uh, He was conceived not in the way that human beings are ordinarily conceived, but through a miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Incarnation is not the Son... (laughs) The Incarnation is not the Son temporarily assuming a human form or taking on some kind of celestial flesh, but the Son permanently adding to Himself, there's the language of addition again, a human nature by the agency of the Spirit through Mary, and in that human nature He lives and experiences a full human life forever. We're going to get into this in the second portion of the book, and we're going to talk about some of the errors that have popped up in the area of Christology, one of them being the error of adoptionism. It would be the idea that a normal human was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, Virgin Mary, in the womb of Mary, in a normal way. So you have a normal human already existing, and you have the eternal Son of God kind of take over, adopt that that human nature, and that human person. You get it? Almost as if the eternal Word of God takes over the human nature and human person so as to possess it, adopt it, the nature and the person as His own. That's, that's, not, that's not orthodox. Instead, we have, we have a human nature miraculously brought into existence in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but it is the person of the Son who is taking to Himself that human nature from the beginning. I mean, let's just take it out of the womb and take it to age 30. And there were some heirs that taught this too. It's not as if there was just a normal guy walking around on earth and then all of a sudden the Spirit of God and the Word of God possessed that, 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 that person, right? Body and soul and person personhood. That's not what we're teaching. That didn't happen in the womb. It didn't happen at age 30 at the baptism of of Jesus. No, from the moment of conception, this was the God-man. This was the second person of the Trinity come to be with us, assuming a human nature from the moment of conception. Uh, Wellam goes on to say, did Jesus have two fathers? That's a really good way to ask the question. Did Jesus have two fathers? Maybe in a sense, but Wellam's going to say no. In a sense, no. In a very important sense, no. Uh, He was indeed uh, raised for some period of time by Joseph. But Joseph was not his father. Joseph was his adopted father. (laughs) That that would be a, a good way to say it. Joseph was not his natural father. Joseph was his adopted father. Uh, There is a sense in which uh, Jesus, I guess, was Joseph's earthly adopted son, almost in a way. I I hope I didn't trip into anything right there. I think that's a good way to say it. Did Jesus have two fathers? Scripture insists that Jesus, as the divine son, has only one father. That the incarnation is the son assuming a human nature, body and soul, not an entire human individual. And that the Son is the subject of both His divine and human natures. So who, in other words, who is the one acting in the person of Christ 
in both the divine and human nature. It is the Word of God who is acting. It is the Son of God who is acting. Later, the church will affirm these truths when it rejects adoptionism and Nestorianism, a point we will discuss in sub- subsequent chapters. Again, just wonderful thoughts there. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Um, you'll need to read Wellam's section on that on your own time. Uh, also, you'll need to do the same with Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and 2, 5 through 18. I may preach on this text on Christmas Day, in fact. Uh, this is where my mind has gone, is to Hebrews 2, 5 through 18, when I ask the question, why the Incarnation? Uh, but in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, we find another wonderful uh, declaration concerning the full deity of Christ. Christ is the God-man. Philippians 2, 6 through 11 has also been at the center of critical Christological debates. It has served as a proof text for the kenotic theory, a phrase taken from the Greek verb kenao, to empty. It means to empty, uh, which is used here in Philippians 2.7. Um, I want to read this text real quick. I, th- I think it's important. Let me see if I could find it fast. Philippians 2, 6 through 11. This is, uh, should be familiar to you. I'll begin at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, speaking of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Did you hear that? But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, etc. Uh, A a wonderful text. And what Wellam is pointing out here is that this passage has been the source of, of much debate, especially in the words... To empty. He emptied himself. What does that mean? What does it mean that the eternal Word of God emptied himself? In the 19th and 20th centuries, some theologians taught that the Son gave up or emptied himself of some of his divine attributes in becoming human. This teaching is very common in the church today. The idea here is that when the Word of God became incarnate, what Philippians is teaching is that he left behind some of his divinity in heaven or something like that. He, it's very common. Maybe you've had these notions yourself. I think there was a time when I had these uh, notions, in fact, when I understood emptied himself to mean that there was, here it is again, change in the second person of the Trinity. You, you understand what the implications are. If we say that this is what emptying himself means, that the Son abandoned some of his divinity or some of his divine attributes, then all of a sudden you must say that at the moment of the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity changed. There was change in the divine nature. It's a big problem. And in the teaching that was presented at that pastor's conference that I've referred to, a lot of emphasis was laid on the importance of first doing theology proper well. First, having a really good doctrine of God and Trinity, and how that does help to safeguard us against making errors in our doctrine of Christ. If we understand who God is, that He is the eternal and unchanging one, then it, it will safeguard us 
against making mistakes when we come to ask the question, who is Jesus then? And understanding the, the incarnation. In chapter 7, we reject canonicism for a variety of reasons, but first and foremost, because this text doesn't teach it. I love it. That's, that's wonderful. This text doesn't teach canonicism. This, te- this text actually doesn't say that the second person of the Trinity changed or left something behind when he became incarnate. And neither does the rest of the Bible. Good for Wellam, to put it so bluntly. The incarnation is not an act of subtraction. It is an act of addition. The incarnation is not an act of subtraction. It is an act of addition. So he likes that language addition, and I think it's fine. He's going to clarify what is meant by it. Neither neither is there change in God due to subtraction or addition, but it is an act of addition. In the incarnation, God the Son acts from the Father and by the Spirit, to add to Himself a human nature, so that now and forever He subsists in two natures without loss of attributes in either nature. (laughs) So when the Incarnation took place, nothing was lost in the divine nature, which would have made Jesus something less than God, wouldn't it? It would have made Him less than God. And... When a human nature was assumed or added, nothing was lost in that human nature so that we would say Jesus was something more than human or less than human. Fully human, fully human nature, fully divine nature united in one person. No mixture, no composition, nothing lacking, you see. So that Jesus was a human in body and in soul. And he had all of his body parts, really flesh. He wasn't a, he wasn't a, a mirage. Uh, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for? He wasn't a, I don't know, a, a ghost of some sort. Yeah, that apparition, is that what you said? He, he wasn't, he was truly flesh, truly blood. He had a, a true human body and a true human soul. And we also need to say that he had all of the faculties of the soul that you and I had, you and I have. He had a mind, he had a human will, he had human affections. Get it? And yet, he was the Word of God come in the flesh. So these two natures, these two full natures, were united together in the person of the Son. So who was the one acting? on earth in the person of Christ. Who was with us? God was. The Son was. I mean, what are you? What are you? Human. Who are you? I should hear a bunch of different names. Right? Get it? What is Christ? The God-man. The God-man. No one else could say that. (laughs) He's the God-man. Who is Christ? The Son. Get it? The eternal Son. Okay. The incarnation is not an act of subtraction. It's an act of addition. In the incarnation, God the Son acts from the Father and by the Spirit to add to Himself a human nature so that now and forever He subsists in two natures without loss of attributes in either nature. Also, it's due to the incarnation that the Son is now able to live a fully human life and achieve our redemption as our new covenant head. 
Let's look at this text and see what it teaches. And he does so in five steps. We don't have the time, I'm afraid. Um, this text is broken into two parts, Philippians 2, 6 through 8 and 2, 9 through 11. In each section, two verbs describe the son's humbling himself and taking our human nature, uh, the state of humiliation, and the father's exalting Christ because of his cross work, the state of exaltation. So you see, he humbled himself and then he's exalted. That's how the movement of the text goes. The movement of the text is from the pre-existent son to his humiliation that results in his exaltation as the son in a new role because of his obedience to the father. When this text is read alongside other texts, we see evidence for triune agency and inseparable action terminating on the Son. The incarnation, then, is an act of the triune God by which the Father sends the Son, and the Son assumes human nature by the Spirit. And the entire action terminates on the Son and not the Father or the Spirit. So it's a triune act, but it terminates on the Son. Wonderful. Humiliation, exaltation in Philippians 2. Got it. Second, the Son's deity is taught by the phrase, "...who though He was in the form of God." Here is an affirmation of the Son's full deity with the, and um, His identity with the, the, the Father. The text provides a contrast between two forms of existence of the Son, the glory He had from eternity as the Divine Son, and what He became by taking the form of a servant. The Son who was and remains eternally and fully God has become fully and truly human. Got that? Okay. Third, the next phrase is best translated, he did not think equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. The issue is not whether Jesus gains equality with God or whether he retains it, since the text stresses that the Son shares full equality with God. Instead, the issue is Jesus' attitude regarding his divine status. The Son did not take advantage or exploit his full equality with God to excuse him from the task of becoming our Redeemer. In this way, Jesus becomes an example for us. The whole text is saying, you should have this mind in yourselves. The same that was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself or humbled himself, took the form of a servant. You understand? So this is about the attitude, if you will, of the, the Son, the attitude of, of Christ and I'm trying to get to, something, get to something important here. That's why I'm rushing. Fourth, the controversial phrase in 2.7, but emptied himself or made himself nothing in the NIV, does not mean that in the incarnation the Son subtracted his divine attributes. By the use of the two participial phrases, taking the form of a servant and being made in human likeness, the nature of emptying is clearly explained. Namely, the Son's emptying was the addition of a human nature. Those who affirm the canonic view make this text say something it does not. With that in mind, however, we must not miss the staggering point. The Divine Son did humble Himself by becoming human and choosing to die on a cross for us, which is simply uh, breathtaking. Uh, Wellam's point here is, is so marvelous. The text says that he emptied himself or made himself nothing in the NIV. But the very next word, I think, is by, isn't it? I didn't open the text up again. By. In other words, when we read the phrase, he emptied himself, and then the question comes to mind, what is meant by that? Right? How did he empty himself? In what sense? That's the question. He emptied himself. How? In what sense did he empty himself? The text immediately answers by taking human form. 
By, so he emptied himself, and this is what is meant by it, by assuming a human nature, by coming in this low status. It does not say anywhere that he emptied himself by laying aside anything divine. There was no change in, in the Godhead. This text doesn't teach that canonic view, and nowhere else is it taught in Scripture. Wonderful treatment of it. Uh, let me rush now through the end of it. Fifth, Philippians 2, 9-11 through 11 concludes where this text began, with the Son exalted in the heavens. Only now every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord in His state of exaltation. In 2, 6-8, through 8, Christ is the subject of the verbs and participles, but in 2, 9, it's the Father who exalts the Son because of His work and obedience. The Father vindicates the Son and exalts Him to the highest position and bestows on Him the name Lord, Yahweh, from Isaiah 45, 21-23. So in this magnificent text, Paul captures beautifully who Jesus is and why the Incarnation took place. Jesus as God the Son, along with the Father and the Spirit, is Lord of all. To redeem us, however, the Divine Son had to become human and die for us. In fact, apart from becoming the last Adam... And obeying for us in His life and death, there is no salvation for us. But as a result of His incarnation and work, the Father has highly exalted His Son, so that now Jesus is Lord twice. First in the Divine Son, and second as the Divine Son incarnate. That's great. In order to redeem us, He had to assume our nature. That, that's the answer to the question on Christmas Day. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll uh, elaborate on it a bit there. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this marvelous teaching. We thank you for your grace and mercy shown to us. We thank you for your plan of salvation, which culminates and centers upon the Christ. It is a mystery to us as to how these two natures would be united in one person, but it is a marvelous mystery, one that we must believe. We thank you, God, that you would be willing to come to earth to assume a human nature, to walk amongst us, to suffer for us in the whole of life, and to even die on the cross for us, to shed your blood. We give you thanks for Christ Jesus crucified and risen and our salvation in Him. In His name we pray. Amen.